1: Hey, everybody, Doc Bryan here, and welcome to Doc Talks, where we talk about our troubles, trials, tribulations, but hopefully our triumphs and how we have gotten to where we are today. With me on this podcast, I have Shane Smith. And Shane, it's such a pleasure uh, to have you here with us today.
0: Very excited to be here.
1: Well, we're glad to have you. As I told you, I, I've I've seen a lot of your work, uh, low key fan girl here, you know. So, uh, so we'll 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 try to uh, make it as as safe as possible, you know. Uh, I'm sure that that you have people just flocking you all around, you know, and you couldn't pick you out of a crowd, you know. You're you're <laughs> so just average everyday Joe American. Yeah, yeah, I really blend in. Yeah. I, I do have to ask you one question though. Oh, please. How much Mountain Dew do you actually have to drink in order to be seen as the Mountain Dew guy and not the neck tattoo guy? You know what? No one's ever
0: asked me the actual amount. I'm very impressed (laughs) that you asked, and I'm excited to say uh, an amount that has made my friends and family very concerned. So at the time, that joke is very real, and I was drinking about six double gulps a day. Wow. Wow. yeah. Yeah.
1: well, we can get into how your body
0: process, processed
1: all that caffeine <laughs> later. But man, it's good to have you here with us. And and uh, so, kind of the premise of Doc Talks here is that uh, we have, especially here in New York City, a lot of aspiring comedians, actors, writers that maybe they've hit a, a bump in their life and they feel like their career is over. Or maybe they're not getting the part or they're just feeling not good enough. And it leads to depression. And we know com. com- uh, comedians, if I can talk now, comedians in general are suffering from depression. And and that's why they are good at their art, because they're projecting happiness to other people in hopes that it kind of rubs off on them in a way. So tell me a little bit about your childhood. Where where were you born? Where were you raised? All that kind of... Good
0: stuff. Um, I was born in Springfield, Oregon. I was raised partially in California and then mostly in Utah, in this tiny town in the middle of nowhere, Utah. Uh, childhood was rocky. I would describe okay. uh, not great. <laughs> okay, so
1: so when you say rocky. And uh, in Utah, uh, because it's kind of, there's nothing in Utah that I
0: know of. Yeah. um, How would you, uh, single parent home, mom, dad there? Oh, man. My mom divorced my dad. uh, Or my parents got divorced. I actually don't know how mutual it was. But my parents got divorced when I was very young, maybe two years old or less. And then my mom, when I was like six years old, married another man. And he was, uh, you know, whatever. And then he had two sons, which then became my brothers. And one of them was my age and the other one was barely older. And so I grew up mostly with him as my father. Uh, But he was very uninterested in being my father, which is like, you know, now that I'm older, I'm like, I guess. that's, You know, but uh, he had a very like well-to-do family. We had grandparents and stuff. They didn't like me. So I got to experience weird things like, uh, my mom had a a son with him. So I had a half brother, him as the father, and then two stepbrothers and my grandparents on that side would like take those three to do things and exclude me purposefully or like have Christmas and then I would have no presents and be discluded and everyone else would have stuff. Or, like, Thanksgiving, there would be no spot for me, and so I would have to, like, you know, be somewhere else or whatever. Stuff like this. Uh, that's enough to mess anybody up. Yeah, yeah. You know?
1: and, and, and I don't understand that because there are those situations where even uh, a family adopts a child, mm-hmm. and then the, the extended family treats them completely different than the biological children in the family. Yeah. Do you
0: have any idea of why you were excluded I think they disliked my mother, and so me by proxy. But I don't know. I've heard from people that I was I was kind of uh, a weird kid, so who knows? Maybe I was also just like a weirdo, and so they were like, we're just going to not even deal with this. But I don't know. As an adult, you think probably like, no, uh, I don't know. So, I've not given it a lot of thought, I'll be honest. And then that was just like the beginning. Those are like the light troubles. Then my uh I I think many things happened and my family was in debt and we weren't doing well and then we moved to Utah and then that's when like it completely broke down both my pair uh my stepfather who I never had a relationship with at all over the course of like, you know, 10 years or whatever and my mother Uh, kind of succumbed to their uh, alcoholism and things and then um, I was basically raising myself at this point and so were my brothers so I was like you know, doing things like going to friends houses in order to eat. I had a best friend who used to like this is so this is a horror, pretty dark, but I had a best friend who used to like do wrestling moves to me and like beat me and treat me very badly and sick as dog on me and things. But I would have to be his friend so that I could eat and get away from my family, which I thought was worse. So I was like it was just, you know, it's not ideal at all. And then my mom married another man, and then he was, like, uh, an evil person. So he, you know, smashed your fingers with a hammer so that you can't play video games as punishment. So this is now the second stepdad? This is the second (laughs) stepdad, and he was, like, on another level of horrific. He was a drunk also, but, like, a mean drunk, and he would, you know— uh, hit my mother and, and you know, do uh, all kinds of crazy, horrific things that are even too dark just to say in polite company, you know. And so I dealt with all of that. And then um, so my brother, my two brothers, I had stepbrothers, they went with the other stepfather, and they left the state. And so it was just me, my half-brother, and my mom together, and then, of course, my stepdad in the mix, by the way, all uh, during all this time, we're going from poor to poorer to poorer until finally we're living in a trailer where we use a potbelly stove for heat and, like, we're not eating and, you know, it's cold and I don't have clothes for school, this type of thing. And so, not that I had to go to school because there are no rules ever. And so, yeah, that was the whole, uh, that was that And then that progressed to the point until I just kind of like gave up on being a kid uh, and was up to whatever I wanted to get up to and just stopped going to school or doing anything.
1: So if I'm right here, you had a stepbrother from the second dad, your stepfather, Mm -hmm. and then a half brother from the stepdad, second stepdad. So
0: first stepdad, the one who was just most uh, just neglectful, literally just I didn't exist to him. He had two children that he brought into the marriage, and they were my stepbrothers. Love those guys. And then he had a son with my mother, who's my half-brother. Okay, so you had two stepbrothers, second step, first stepdad. Mm -hmm. No stepbrother, no children with the second stepdad. He just brought alcoholism, and that was it. That was all he had to offer. But the the
1: second stepdad took the two stepchildren from the second step.
0: No, no, the first stepdad bailed out of everyone's lives with the two stepbrothers and me and my half brother, my half brother could have left with him, but chose to stay with me and my mom. So we all stayed in the nightmare together, kind of out of some sort of.
1: So it's interesting that he left with two children that were not his.
0: No, no, they were his. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. That's where I was thinking. I know it's a whole white trash mess. (laughs) It's a whole white trash mess. So he left with his two sons from a different woman. And then he left my half brother with me and my mom. Okay. Yeah, yeah.
1: So what kind of things did you do in your childhood to just entertain yourself?
0: Um, mostly reading. Okay. A lot of music listening, reading. I spent a lot of time by myself. I also, like, bounced around to other people's houses, so I had a lot of friends. But also, my friends, when I was a kid, many of them, I think, saw that I—not saw that I was using them, but, like, they felt that I was using them. Like, I did have a really good friend who accused me in, like, when I was in eighth grade of using him for his food and his entertainment and stuff. And it's like, yeah, motherfucker, I am. I like you, but also I need this. I'm dying, like you know. So, But he didn't get that. And, of course, I didn't know how to communicate it. I was trying to, like, hide this stuff or, or not even hide it, but just not think about it.
1: Right. Because that was the only really thing that you had to cope was to just suppress it.
0: Yeah. And if I brought it to light, let's say hypothetically I brought it to light and someone cared. And there were times when things would be brought to light. I would go to school with, you know, horrific injuries or cuts or or any number of things and and you know, I live in a small town. It's a graduating class of like 40 people or whatever or less. They know what's happening. But of course, and I know they know, uh and and nothing is being done about it. So in my mind I'm I'm like, well, if I If I take this as far as I can take it, let's just say hypothetically I get tired of it one day and I'm a child and I go to like the sheriff's office and I tell the sheriff this is happening and we live in a waking nightmare like you have to do something and he doesn't just bring me back to my stepfather, which was a possibility, even if I took it to its conclusion, then what institutionalism? I, now they're going to make me go to school. Now I don't get to see my friend, you know, so I can take away my coping mechanisms in order to survive, but that's not how you survive. So now I'm, you know, I'm trapped. And I was very, I was keenly aware of it as a kid. Right. But I would assume this is
1: probably early mid nineties. 2000s, okay, so, 2000s. Okay. So that was just kind of on the horizon of where child abuse became a little bit more strict
0: yeah but also we're in a small town where we had teachers who hit kids you know we're back in time in this tiny town so i mean we used to drive i uh, take guns to school you know so this is a root and toot and cowboy town gotcha there are people in that town that have never had ids never paid taxes do you know what i mean maybe like, i need to move there <laughs> this is a one of the legit It's a wild west place still, you know, and there's a few of those in Wyoming, Montana, Utah, New Mexico. Okay, so into
1: to high school age here, Mm -hmm. I I guess this this sort of abuse, neglect is still moving forward. Does it then become worse as you get older?
0: Yeah, it becomes worse. But I also become so good at avoiding it that now my coping mechanism, you know, like I will see my stepfather acting up and I'm at this point I'm resentful of my mother and stuff so instead of protecting her even wanting to be around depending on the situation I would just do things like I'll go out of course it's Utah so it's cold I'll just walk all night so that I don't freeze to death in in order to avoid being home so I got so good at avoidance that uh it didn't matter And then, of course, I had, you know, friends, my best friend at the time who was also in a similar situation. So I would escape with him. But then I go to his place and then his father holds a shotgun to my head and accuses me of burying bodies in the floor and is like beating both of us. And so, you know, (laughs) so there's no escape. And also the only one of the only people I'm relating to is also going through very similar things. So maybe we should end
1: this podcast and call a real expert <laughs> in here. Uh, yeah, this is uh, almost outlandish that this could happen in America, in a society where
0: we are supposed to protect each other. Oh, yeah, and it's so much worse than I'm even. I'm absolutely giving you the light stuff. I've told other I've told other people. In group therapy about things like this, and I've had uh, people who have been the victims of war crimes be like, "It, this is worse." Yeah, I've—I mean, as bad as it gets. On my 16th birthday, I came home, and I and my mom was slitting her wrists. And I asked her what she was doing, and she was like, "Oh, I'm trying to kill myself." But you have to cut up your arm, not across. And I had to take the knife from her. And go into my room. And then I used the knife my mom was killing herself with to open a box my uh, friend's mother had gotten me for my birthday that was full of clothes. So, like, that's the, that's the vibe of my childhood. Um, and then, of course, during all of this, I'm, I'm so out for myself. It's me versus everybody. So I'm stealing. I'm fighting. I'm cheating, lying, doing anything it takes to get by. Luckily, I had decided to be sober, so I'm not using drugs or alcohol as a coping mechanism at all during any of this. So my drug of choice would be books. I read an outlandish amount of, of books. Was there any type of specific
1: genre of books that gave you comfort or helped you to escape more than another?
0: Oh, fantasy, for sure like Lord of the Rings, things of this nature, heroic epics. I was always a big fan of, um, you know, the pseudo-realistic, not necessarily a power fantasy, but just like, you know, against all the odds, you know, that kind of stuff. Did you
1: find comfort in those kind of things, even knowing that it was unrealistic, that something like this could happen to you that turned
0: everything around? Yeah, I definitely... I was, I never had any fantasies of escaping. It, I, I couldn't. I had already accepted that I wasn't going to leave my brother or my mother. I eventually did try to escape, but only because I was like, I'm a, when I turned, right before I turned 17, I was like, I'm a man now. It's time to go, which seems early to most people. But for me, that was like late. I was like, I've waited too long. So I never, like, you know, from the ages of, like, when I was reading heavily and escaping, I think the escapism really started around 11 all the way to 17. And during those six years, it was just sort of day-to-day
1: survival. So now moving into you leaving at 17.
0: Yes. Where did you go? I joined the Army. Okay. And they treated me very badly, (laughs) of course. And I was injured. And I'll, I'm will i going to gloss over a lot of this because I, I don't generally love talking about it just because I, I don't want to be a person who lauds any kind of military service as a part of my personality. And also I wasn't in for very long. So I served for a little over a year. I made it through all my trainings, but I was 17, so I wasn't allowed to leave the base. And I also didn't really form a lot of relationships with the other soldiers as they were all older. This is 2004, 2005, so... We're all going to avenge 9-11. I joined the infantry. I was trying to be a ranger. I very was like gung-ho. Like I read Starship Troopers and was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to earn my citizenship. And like, anyway, the propaganda worked on me. So very silly. Um, I got hurt. I got very hurt. I had no one to turn to. I have no one at home I can call to motivate me. Like, no, you should stay. Try to figure this out. A military doctor was like, you can leave and you should leave. I think he kind of just saw me as this goofy 17-year-old kid. I remember him very clearly. Anyway, I was like, I guess, should I? And and he was like, you should go. You shouldn't be here, kid. And he kind of signed my papers. And then I was in this thing, uh, this like holdover for a, a while. And then I was released from the military. And because I was released before I was 17, I didn't get any VA benefits or anything. So no health care, no bill to go to school. And they did that on purpose. Yeah. So I got screwed out of a lot of stuff. Uh, I lost kind of like a year and a couple months of my life. I think I learned a lot of valuable lessons. And also I got strong. So I'm strong. I have all these skills, you know, to make war uh, and everything. I get out. I go home. Let's try not to make war. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, unfortunately, that's not my mindset. I got home. I just started trying to like live my life. I made a bunch of friends. And then I ended up starting to fall. I made some bad friends, and then I started to fall back into stealing, lying, doing whatever it takes to survive, you know, immediately. So at one
1: point, as you described it, you became a professional criminal. Yes. Now, typically, the word professional means you get paid to do it. Yep. And so... How? How? Explain to me what professional criminal means in in your
0: opinion. So, um, a professional criminal is a crime. Works like uh, any other business. So, let's say you're a mobster. We're gonna use the mob because everyone knows what it is. And there's different versions of it that exist throughout prisons in the United States, in different cultures, in different areas, and it takes a different shape, but we're going to go with the mob. So the mob has high-up guys, and these are uh, a businessmen that make lots of money, and they're almost always obvious you know that that's a mobster you see him he's so powerful you can't do anything about it then he has people under him and people under them and they are kind of the top brass these are rich people they're the wall street of crime and then below them there's a median group of criminals and they make a lot of money and they're kind of the middle crime class and what they do is what the normal middle class does and they contract most of their actual work down so People who collect money for the mob, people who threaten people for money, people who kill people for money, people who rob other criminals for money, they are usually contracted by this crime middle class. So I was essentially the lowest class of criminal, which is kind of a made man, I guess. And I worked with motorcycle clubs mostly which is the Midwest and West version of the mob. And, um, you know, I would be, it starts out with, hey, this uh, we paid this 7-Eleven cashier $50. He knows you're going to rob him. You're going to make a thousand bucks. I'll give you a hundred dollars. It's easy. Just, just leave. Don't get caught. Act normal. And then you do it right. And he says, good job. How would you like to do something else? How would you like to collect money here? Hey, this guy's acting up. We need. Why don't you go collect in this amount of money from him? Hey, this person's doing that, you know, and then it builds until they're like, well, "You're good at this." How would you like to really make some money? And then that's kind of how it happened for me. So, is there like a website we can go to to apply for this kind of work? <laughs> so the thing about crime is that it's not like school. You can't apply. No one's applying to the Bloods, and they're like, "The Crips are my safety gang," you know. So, um, because they only trust people who they know. Of course, that's why crime is so localized. And that's how the crime contracting is. This isn't the real crime term, but this is just a term for the listeners to understand. That's how it works. Because you can only contract out to people you trust and you can only trust people you know. So if I'm a criminal with a lot to lose because I have hundreds of thousands of dollars and a family and things, I go to the neighborhood and I go to the man who runs that neighborhood, who has the keys to the neighborhood, and I say, hey, I need this guy hurt. Do it. He's not going to do it. He contracts to me who he knows is from the neighborhood, who he trusts, who he's seen come up as a street kid. I'm not going to go in anywhere. And if I do something wrong, he knows the consequences are easy to apply to me. Whereas if you just showed up and were like, hey, let me let me do crime for money. I can hurt people. I have a gun or I know how to rob. You know, you're going to get you're a cop. Right. And this is why so, the police can't well, stop
1: organized crime. Well, uh, I was a police officer for about six years. <laughs> and and I remember and this just brought back to my memory. There was a a time where I went undercover to go buy crack cocaine. Yes. And I get to this guy, and he's a low-level dealer. I mean, just, you know, corner street guy. I was like, hey, man, I got 20 bucks. What can I get? And he looked at me, and he said, what do you mean? I said, "I I need a fix. And he said, you're too fat to be on crack cocaine.
0: Oh, no. And I'm like,
1: well, it's for my girlfriend. And he said to me, you're too ugly to have a girlfriend. No. And I was like... Okay, he knows I'm a cop. Yeah, I mean, it's it's (laughs) but we both know that police officers are easy to spot. They are. And so uh, there's there's a whole other level that comes to trying to, you know, expose this professional type of crime uh, because they're
0: good at it. Yeah. Um, As a criminal at this level of crime, you have a personal relationship with the gang unit. You know, every officer in the unit, you see them often, you have a rapport with them. You talk with them. They see you. You see them. You both know what each other are up to. You know when they're messing with someone who you want them to mess with. They know when you're up to stuff they don't want you to be up to. It's a very interesting sort of game you're all playing. And also at my level of crime as like a made man or a 1% or whatever, I also am keenly aware uh, the gang unit is less interested in me and more interested in the people who contract out to me. And, and uh, you know, of course, I would use that to my advantage often.
1: Right. So just for the pleasure of the listeners, mm. uh, what would be the if, if you want to share and if not, yeah, we, yeah, can, no worries. we can edit this whole part out. <laughs> what would have been the one crime that you committed that you really came to the realization of, oh, crap, I
0: might actually get caught this time? Oh, there were a lot of I mean, I was in several robberies where there were shootings. You know, and even when no one's hurt, you're just like, we're shooting guns. Uh, that's always sketchy. I mean, I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, I would say there were a few robberies where I was like, all right, I'm not Ocean's 11. I shouldn't be here. So some of the movie scenes where you
1: see this <laughs> this gang of people go into a bank and rob a bank and then one of the people shoot a teller. And another one the robber goes, what are you doing? Yeah, this was it. So that really is picturesque of
0: some things that that could be real. I will say there were there was a time where mostly who we robbed is other criminals. As you know, that's how it mostly goes. Um, there were a few times where we robbed legitimate businesses. And, you know, you of course, if you're robbing a bank, you don't show your gun. That's how you go to jail for longer. So, if you're robbing a bank with a friend, you know, usually you're doing it quietly and then you go loud if you need to, but that's never, you know, you're trying not to do that. But if you're, so like a jewelry store, you close, you lock the door as you rob the jewelry store so no one can come in. But once someone forgot to lock a door, of a place we were uh, robbing and people were coming in and I was, we were like, oh, okay, well this is fair, ver- this is exact. Like we're in the back doing what we're supposed to be doing. Um, and then we came out and there were people like trying to do business. Hello, what are you doing? And I was like, I don't work. I don't work here as completely oblivious to the fact that I'm wearing a mask am clearly a, a, doing a crime, and there are people on the other side of this this uh thing like, can I get some help here? No, you can't. Who didn't lock the door? So that was a silly moment that I think I can get away with saying. <laughs> so at,
1: at what point did you come to the realization that I can't do this anymore?
0: It's very, it is a anticlimactic, because... You're not hurting people physically when you're robbing them, almost ever, unless they're other criminals, and then uh, they would be doing the same to me, so I do not care. We never at any point were in physical altercations with the police outside of running from them. So anyone we ever hurt, it was like, yeah, you deserve this. So I never had any guilt about that. Of course, you know, I, I can't understate how much, you know, psychological trauma, even me personally, I've inflicted over, on accident over the course of that part of my life. And that's something that I think about sometimes and it is so unfortunate, but I had no regrets. I'll be honest. People do crime because it's fun. People do police work the way they do police work because it's exciting. I, I would be remiss to pretend like it doesn't feel good to have friends who will go to bat for you. As a police officer, you're keenly aware to go out with someone who has your back feels like nothing you can describe to other people. it's it's a love that is on par with the love a man has for his wife or his husband. You know, it's that brotherhood is intoxicating. And then it's exciting to rob. It's exciting to drive fast, to break the law, to so all this stuff feels good. So I'm not having any guilt about any of it. Um, so I, I had no guilt at the time. What got me was there was a time we got into a fist fight at an Arby's with this group of dudes who threw a snowball at me. This is very stupid. So we're fighting these people and we're beating them up. And, I, and my brother, who is also a criminal, I looked over and my brother was beating this guy. He had him on the side of a booth and there was a family eating at Arby's and the woman had like covered her son's eyes as if like, I don't know, someone was going to get naked or something. And I just remember watching my brother and watching them and being like, is my brother the bad guy right now? And I kind of was just like, "We're gonna die if we keep doing this. There's only two ways out of this lifestyle. Neither of us are moving up. We're not. I'm. Not, I'm never gonna be a, a a rich mobster. I can't make it farther than this, you know. And I'm good at it, but like, what is this? It's exciting, but it's not fulfilling. I'm doing nothing. My brother's in danger. I'm in danger. And, and it, all of a sudden, the clarity just washed over me. And, and my brother at the same time, both of us were like, we got to move. We got to leave. I'm sure you're somewhat aware of how involved the task of leaving is. And so we began that process. You know, and that task is involved both on the side of being a criminal and on dealing with the police. I'm very, very, very lucky that um, the Salt Lake City Gang Unit was more than willing to help me turn my life around. And that's not often the case for many people who were in situations like that. So I turned my life around, moved out of the country for a while, came back, and then kind of restarted from ground zero at 26 years old. Restarting here in America,
1: when you got here, we'll use the term boots on the ground in America. Yeah. Now, and I will say this, uh, even going out of the country to visit there's this oppression that kind of comes. And then when you come back to America, it's almost like you see fireworks, the American flag and a bald Eagle Eagle falls over you and you're, you're free again. Yeah. So then you have the American dream. What was your goal at that point when you came back?
0: You know, uh, my goal, I had no lofty goals. My goal was to be as happy as possible. Be fulfilled and I also wanted to try having a a relationship. I had never had a successful relationship. all my relationships with women were very bad. I dated a woman who hit me a lot and like had really negative experiences with women. Wildly unlucky with you women.
1: say that like it' doesn't happen that women hit you because yeah, yeah, it, yeah it's kind of well, while no one should hit anyone, it's kind of unfair it, you know, it yeah. <laughs> uh, in a lot of ways so it, it, you said you you wanted to have a relationship mm-hmm. you wanted to be happy you wanted to be fulfilled but what
0: did that really look like did you even know in my mind it just looked like being able to pursue my passions which were just like I, i'm a i always ha- had in my life the juxtaposition between Shane, the like nerd who reads a lot, loves Lord of the Rings, wants to play Dungeons and Dragons and paint and very nerdy. I have all this like a whole, you know, I'm very out of my own head. I I love comics and, and all of this stuff. Right. And then that person is does not also mix with Shane who needs needs you to fear him so that he you don't kill him. And, and I had to maintain that other person, even when I was a child, when I was trying to like, not deal with my stepfather and, and have respect and, and survive as a kid. And so now I'm 26 and I'm like, well, i have nothing to prove to anyone. I could kill you if I wanted to. So now I'm just going to like, let that wash away from me. Not try to like, uh, buy into this sense of, of, you know, where I need the security of, of how people perceive me and just let myself love goofy stuff. And that's what I did. And it was really great. And while that is the healthy thing to
1: do. Yeah. Was it not also then scary because you never really knew what happiness was?
0: Yeah. And there are still times now currently when I'm where I'm like, I don't even know if I'm doing it right. You know, I I try really hard to like practice self-love or, or have positive self-talk and stuff. But, There are times when I'm I stop and I'm like, well, don't you learn to love yourself from people loving you? And like, I I'll be honest, I don't have almost any examples where I feel that I've been loved. And then I'm like, do I actually not have examples of people loving me or do I just not know what it looks like? And so I'm not sure what I'm even looking for. There's a lot of doubt in how I'm even interacting with the world in a positive sense, you know. Because you had never seen it that way. Yeah. I know how to survive, but I don't know how to to just be. And and that comes from,
1: in a lot of cases, uh, from your childhood. You know, we, we kind of look at things, and maybe not in your case, because uh, your case is a bit extreme. Mm. But... As a child, there are dysfunctions that happen in homes that we kind of feel is normal because yeah. we don't know any better. We don't we don't have the idea that it's you know, supposed to be leave it to beaver kind of yeah. kind of scene of everything is this perfect Mayberry world. and and so we kind of get stuck in a rut of, well, this is my normal. So what does real happiness? look like when this is my normal which is skewed yeah in trying to search for happiness I could only assume that your view of what happy is was still outside of normal
0: yeah I think that's why I value laughter very highly I mean I can't even date someone who doesn't make me laugh often It's essentially my number one priority at all times because laughter is unmistakable. When I laugh, I am feeling good. So it is a very tangible way to there's no mistaking. I am enjoying myself when I laugh, but I know that enjoyment doesn't come from that type one fun. Uh, type one being very w- is laughter you know i'm laughing this is great type two fun maybe something's fulfilling and maybe kind of difficult but you think you feel good and then type three fun is like you know getting your doctorate it's not fun but it's so rewarding that you might characterize it as fun
1: well i think uh You know, in my personal experience going into a a doctoral program, I was surprised I even got admitted into there. And then by the time I graduated with that $150,000 piece of paper, uh, (laughs) I thought, man, they would give anybody one of these. You know, so there was this, yeah, this sense of fulfillment, but at the same time, this thought of, did I really do something spectacular? So have you ever felt that way when you maybe not even necessarily a goal, but something great happened in your life and you thought, well, I didn't even really earn this? Oh, yeah. All the time. So
0: tell me, just give
1: me an example of one of those times that 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 has happened.
0: I mean, just in general, uh, like when I got my when I did my first special and it got really popular. I hate that special. I don't think it's good. And people love it. And I was just like, I guess. And of course, I'm so, so thankful to take advantage of all the opportunities and make money for the first time in my life and and all these other things. I'm just like, yeah, what's going on here?
1: In in the search of happiness and fulfillment and relationship, did you then get into a relationship that was semi-functional?
0: Mm, no. No, I did date someone and we uh and uh she and I were not great together. Our relationship was very like there was almost no communication. We just kind of like enjoyed each other's company. She was very submissive to everything I needed or wanted, and I I kind of I wasn't fulfilled and I didn't understand why and I just kind of thought, "Oh, well, this is just me." I cuz For me, the volume on my life seems to be turned down compared to other people. So was it kind of
1: like you had never experienced somebody push you before? Yeah, no. And you needed some,
0: You that's what you needed. I did. I wanted a romantic partner to do that. Of course, I had had my friends push me, you know, and I experienced all that brotherhood. So I kind of thought, and then I have all these toxic, very traditional type value people around me. I'm living in Utah And not to say anything bad about Mormon people. I mean, there's a lot to say bad about any organization, right? But there's a lot of good too. But they all had this, your friends are your friends, and your girlfriend or your wife is your wife. You don't need her to be your friend. She's your wife. Let her be that. Which I think is horrific advice. I, of course, I want to be friends. With- That's the worst advice I've ever heard in my life. It all I, I heard it from multiple people. But with,
1: and to any listener who may be Mormon, this is a joke and don't take this seriously, <laughs> but which wife do you have to be your wife and not your friend? You got a friend wife? Yeah, you, you got, got a friend wife. And it's kind of, I heard, <laughs> I heard a guy say one time, he said, you need to find a wife that will cook and a wife that will clean, a wife that will love you, a wife that will take care of your children, a wife that will take care of all of your needs, but you never let them know each other. <laughs> and, and so that that kind of gets into the the point of, I don't really think
0: you can love somebody that's not your friend. I discovered that. I cheated on her. Of course I did, because I was too much of a coward to leave her. And then you know, which is something I'll openly admit. Wait, you robbed jewelry stores, but you couldn't
1: leave a woman. Yeah, <laughs> women. Right? Let me let me write that down here.
0: For- <laughs> well, I didn't want to hurt her feelings. Oh, okay. Do you know what I mean? Which is I, so counterintuitive. That it is. you're Like, well, I'll just I'll just cheat then. Mm-hmm. I'll just get fulfilled somewhere else. I
1: don't want to hurt her feelings, but I will
0: destroy her life exactly and cheat on her. Exactly. It's so insane. It makes no sense. But at the time, it makes sense to you because you're like, well, she's not going to know. And and you're so in your own head about what you need and and feeling desired and that passion. You're trying to get it from anywhere. Anyway, of course, you know, uh, our relationship falls apart and we we break up. I try to date. Dating is so terrible. Six months go by. We get back together. We immediately get engaged. And uh, we get married. Horrible mistake. And then I I fell in love for my first time ever at my own wedding with someone else. This just keeps getting better. <laughs> and uh, it was very not good. Um, I fell in love with her the second I saw her. Was like, she one of
1: the bridesmaids? No. Okay. Well. My
0: friend brought her as his date. Oh, my goodness. Of course, I'm a very, you know, I was like, I'm not going to hurt my wife. I messed up once you married her suck it up and be with her. This is what you've done. Lie in your bed. You made it once
1: again. Horrible advice. Yes.
0: So I and of course, my friend brought her. My friend keeps dating her. Well, I'm friends with my friend. So now I'm becoming friends with her. I'm acutely aware that I fell in love with her when I saw her. We become best friends. Her and I absolutely nothing weird going on. No flirting, no touching. We hugged maybe twice in two years. I eventually get divorced. She breaks up with him. I confess that I'm in love with her. We start a romance. My career takes off. She becomes jealous of my career. Other things happen. We had a, I will call it a sexual misstep that she made a mistake and did something that she shouldn't have without my consent. And uh, your wife? No, uh, the girl who I'm dating now that I was okay. in love with. Okay. We, Me and my wife got divorced at this point. OK, the first girl I've ever loved. Uh, our relationship falls apart immediately. And uh, since then, I've been kind of adrift in a sea of not knowing how to have a relationship, really. But yeah, so that was terrible. <laughs> I was in love and it was really good for about six months till it wasn't. Okay, so <laughs> since then you've not had another serious relationship. I had I dated a girl seriously for a couple of months, and she was the best girl I've ever dated, and she treated me perfectly. Everything about her is perfect, but physically it wasn't there, and uh, I I just like wasn't I was missing that part of it, and so I I instead of doing what I did with my last with my ex wife and being a coward, I said no. You've learned your lesson. You're a man. And I sat her down and broke up with her to her face, which is terrible. Why do people do that? Oh, my God. Doing the right thing is so awful, everybody. It was so terrible. Women say they want you to do it, but I don't know. They might not all the time. Some Maybe a letter sometimes. Wow, it was so bad. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life, and that was before quarantine. So that was February, March. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like seven year. months ago. Okay and
1: no quarantine love within the last since March. I kind of met a girl and and we like you let's say you maybe met a girl cuz we don't want you to get any legal trouble here yeah, yeah. of not supposed to be, you know, <laughs> around anybody.
0: Right. I maybe met a girl and and we sort of it was really passionate and everything, but then she moved away. Uh, the long distance thing was kind of happening. But then she she made a misstep. She said some, she accidentally, she says it was an accident. She compared me to people she had been with in the past. And it painted me in a not so positive light. And she didn't realize she was doing it at the time. And it hurt my feelings very much. I'm normally not a very insecure guy. But as I've begun to like allow myself to get more of my feelings and and just be me, I've found like, Hey, I'm jealous and insecure sometimes, which isn't always negative, but I was like, don't like this. And it kind of destroyed our relationship.
1: So we'll, we'll back up a a little bit here. Out of, of without of outside of relationships (laughs) and get more
0: towards your career. Yeah. How did that take off or get started? As I was getting back with my ex-wife, the, when we broke up, It was kind of a whole, like, I'm going to change my life. I'm kind of adrift. I'm doing nothing. I have no fulfillment. I want more from life. And I almost was like, do I try to, what do I do here? Do I, like, dedicate my life to a purpose? Do I become Batman? Like, I want more. I want excitement. I need anything. I I was, like, almost like, do I just go back to crime? Like, I want to feel like I'm a part of something. And I was like, no. No. You got, let's bring joy to the world. Let's do anything. So I said, I like comedy. I've always wanted to do comedy. I was always funny as a kid. People have told me I was funny my whole life. I like stories. I like writing. I have all these experiences to draw from. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to do that. I went and did it in open mic and uh, it was on. I, I just dedicated. I'm very good at making a plan, being focused, and just kind of like throwing my whole body at the task. So I did that, changed my job, did everything I could to set my hours so I could do the most comedy possible. And I just made, I mean, from day one, I went to, I did comedy the way, you know, you probably got your doctorate. It was like, this is it. I'm doing it. This is all of my energy, all of my spare time. This is my whole life. And it's been like that since.
1: Except for my motivation was I've spent all this money. I might as well. (laughs) you know, follow through, Yeah, because uh, I'll be paying the rest of my life for this piece of paper. Um, <laughs> so what was uh, within your career uh, here as, as a comedian, what was your highest point?
0: My highest point? You know, it's hard. I, I don't know that I even have a, a pinpoint. There's been a lot of moments where I've stopped and been like, this is a big deal. Often I'm so in the moment and I'm so all business that in the bigger moments it feels like I'm so in the task that the moment doesn't feel big. Do you know what I mean? I don't allow the moment to overwhelm me because I need to perform.
1: So it, would it be fair to say that it's more about the business than the the drive of being the entertainer?
0: I don't know that it's about the business I enjoy being good at what I do the fulfillment comes from being good in that moment on stage and I do have so much fun it's fun to be good but there's it's also a job and if it's gonna be a job I take it seriously uh the same way if I was going to do something as serious as you know if I'm gonna rob a drug dealer I know when he leaves his house, who he dates, who he's talking to, who his friends are, who comes over, how late he stays up. Like, I'm doing the work. I'm I'm hitting the gym. I'm making sure my, you know, everything's... There's a lot that's going into it. And I take that and apply it to comedy also. I'm ready for war when I do comedy. For lack of a better term, and it sounds so serious and dorky. But the reality is that I'm just... You know, the moment is big, and I could get overly excited, but I would rather stay cool, stay calm. Pretend you've been here before, baby. You're you're a professional. Let's have fun with these people. This isn't time for Shane to be excited about his career. This is time to do your job and make these people right here laugh. This is me and them. So that's like in my mind kind of as I'm pushing down the excitement. So would you say that
1: once the show is over where you killed it, are you still then suppressing
0: some of that energy? Immediately, damn, what did I do wrong? What do I got to fix? Was that good? What do you think of the set? Talking to other people, trying to figure it out. And then also now I have to contend maybe I have to meet people, and so I got to shake off the show and kind of rein in my social anxiety because it's a little weird to be meeting people, and I have to, you know, talk to people and whatever. And then of course I feel goofy because they want to meet me and I and I don't and I'm just like, I'm not, I don't feel famous, you know. So it's just it's weird. And so I had to like get into headspace to deal with that. I don't feel famous either. <laughs> but I have recently
1: uh through my TikTok Page started having people walk up to me in stores and saying, Oh my God, you're Doc Bryan. I love like, it. And I'm going, No, <laughs> I'm not Doc <laughs> Bryan. You must be thinking about somebody else. Who's Doc Bryan? And then immediately try to remove myself the, because it's so weird. It is. I mean, it's just it's weird. And then we see these celebrities on TV that are being followed by, you know, paparazzi and fans and and then people talk about how rude they are because they want the crowds to leave and they don't want, but it's weird.
0: Yeah. And I, and to be clear, I love everyone who's ever had an interaction with me or told me they love my comedy or wanted to meet me. I appreciate them, but you have to understand that it's just not something I want to get used to. I want to be very surprised by you when you say you like my comedy. I never want to feel like, oh yeah, of course you do. I always want to be like, damn, that guy came up to me cool. You know, I always want it to be a little weird, a little different, a little awkward. I want to maintain that early career sort of, I guess, humbleness. Hmm. So. So to have a overweight, bald,
1: Southern Arkansan (laughs) clinical psychologist say to you, I really love what you do is more of a compliment than anybody else could give you love it love it so i just be clear (laughs) on that to our listeners genuinely love it yeah because there are those people too that i find that they're not so much that they really do appreciate you as much as they want to tell their friends that they met you yeah and so there is that and we i shouldn't say we because this may have happened four times to me as you know probably (laughs) hundreds of times I feel that you know I feel the the difference in their vibe and and the way they talk and whether you know people like to say well I can fool anybody no you can't fool anybody people that do what we do for a living
0: mm-hmm.
1: can tell if somebody's being authentic in what they say or not yeah and so I, I think that it's very important for us to to keep in mind that it's almost better to not give a compliment if you're not completely devoted to what you're saying.
0: Yeah, I agree and I think that I have a a pretty good sense about how people are feeling. Uh too, I think that's a part of my job. Obviously, I have to be able to manipulate you in some way or another in order to elicit the response I want from you. That's my whole gig technically. When you break it down, it's weird, but so when people come up to me and they, you know, I can I can almost sense what they want or don't want. Also, sometimes people accidentally just reveal, say, my friends don't think you're funny, but I love you. Or like, I'm not not trying to be weird. I'm not like one of those people, but my friends love you, but I can tell, you know, they're... So it's always weird. Just say what you mean. Right.
1: There is nothing going to change the way you react to them based upon what they're telling you, whether it's the truth or not. Yeah. And so I I think maybe that comes within their own insecurities about, well, I don't want him to think that I'm some weirdo. Totally. You know, although when, when I first saw one of your sets that you did back, oh, several years ago, just looking at you, I predisposed judgment about this is some, you know, hard guy that how in the world is he going to make anybody laugh? (laughs) (laughs) And then about, you know, 10 minutes into the set, I was like, this guy's just a big dork you know, this is this is what this really is. So do you have have you ever come to a challenge in your career of where people assume that you're something that you're not and that has affected you negatively?
0: Yes. I mean, that has been this, you know, that that's been a lot of my life. You know, the world is uh, especially early, you know, like when I was doing crime. You know, there's times where you're not always a criminal. Often you're a regular guy, and then you're being treated badly, and it's like, you know, at the time you don't think it, but you're secretly being like, oh, well, you know, I'm different from you. Fuck you. Right. You know, and you're just pushing me away. In comedy, I've had quite a few. In romantic relationships, I, you know, I've I've had girls be like, I like you, but I could never take you home or, or whatever. And I would say to that, then you don't like me. Exactly. That's exactly what I also have said, you know, then you don't like me that much. Clearly, I've also been negatively perceived in a not necessarily a negative way where I've I've had, of course, people be like, I don't want him around because I'm scared of him or uh, I, I mean, I've you're ax- a very scary person, right? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I think I'm such a goofball. But if you don't know me, then you don't know. I've had pe- I've overheard someone saying they don't want to leave me alone with the girls on the show or whatever. What do you think I'm like? I don't know what you think I'm gonna do. But, and so that stuff is hurtful. Another thing that people don't think about is when people are very into the way I look in a negative way. Girls who want to slum it with me. I don't actually like you, I just like the idea of you. You know, and that's something that I've encountered quite a bit throughout my life. They want the bad boy syndrome. Exactly. And they want to be with you, but not with you. Exactly. You know, that can feel very bad until you catch on to what's going on. Now I'm kind of more aware of when it's happening. But early in my life, you know, of course, it only ever happens to people who are out of your league. You know what? This this well-to-do, educated woman likes me. She thinks I'm funny. Like, she has has a nice car. She goes to school. What does she want to do with 24-year-old? This is weird. I'm so excited. Oh, it turns out that she doesn't actually like me. She just liked that it was an adventure for a little bit or whatever. And I still get that to this day. You know, people who just like the idea of it. And that must, at some
1: point, leave you feeling really empty.
0: Yes. I I would say that um, the negative feeling I feel the most... Besides a sort of a, um, self-loathing, which I don't know. I think a lot of people feel or annoyance at myself. You know, I don't like the sound of my own voice. I don't like I don't hate if someone puts on one of my performances. It physically is painful. Uh, I don't know if you listened back to your own broadcast. But I But it's tough. Well, oh, I'll tell, it's so
1: tough. I, well, let me tell you a little secret. And And we try not to expose this for for specific reasons, but I actually pastor a church. So every Sunday morning I'm giving a sermon and then I go home just to make sure the Facebook Live did right. And I'm like, I sound terrible, (laughs) like terrible, you know? And then I even hear my own accent and I'm going, Why do I talk this way, you know? You know what? I would listen
0: to your sermons. I will say, and I was saying this on a stream last night to a a large group of people, uh, Best Accent. I love the Southern Accent. I did
1: a snippet on TikTok, which was very controversial. Uh, (laughs) And and essentially, the, the premise of it was that successful women have a very hard time finding a partner. Of, of similar status that are not already married or attached because men often marry down because of masculinity issues. I mean, we're taught we have to be the supreme. Yeah, absolutely. So I
0: can't believe that's controversial. Do
1: you know how many people out of the 1.7 million views what their one concern about that whole post was? No. That I said similar instead of similar. I say similar, too. And so so what I did was I got, you know, 10 people that I don't know real well. You know, I had to do this psychological study. And I went to them with the word on the piece of paper and said, hey, can I record you saying this word? And they were like, okay. And all 10 of them said it exactly the way that I say it. And they weren't all from Arkansas. Yeah, you're fine. And And so... The problem is, is, and I'm sure you deal with this in comedy. When people are offended, it's not always about the content, but about finding that one thing that they think is going to just be the the straw that that broke the camel's back mm. to break you down. Yeah, absolutely. And most of them, as I on another podcast talked with with uh, Dave Landau, I said, you know. Those are mostly the 40-year-old men that are living in their mother's basements who have a certain level of anonymity that, hey, nobody's ever going to find out who I am.
0: Anonymity plus an audience equals human filth is my I
1: completely th- agree with you.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's the, it's, the, it's the anonymity plus the audience. And it's just, it's wild. It is wild.
1: All right. Well, thank you for listening to Doc Talks today. I am Doc Brian, And as we go into this diagnosis part, you can find that episode on Patreon where we talk about the diagnosis and what I actually think is going on with our guest and discuss that diagnosis and potential treatment of how we would bring all of this together to help Shane cope with his I'm not going to say mental illness.
0: Uh, No, Uh, absolutely. uh, I'm I'm mentally ill. We can say it. (laughs) I'm I'm I'm
1: so excited. uh, So, Shane, I I appreciate you sharing your story with us for being vulnerable. I know that it's not always easy to do, uh, especially in a setting where it's not comedic. You know, it's very raw. Uh, Shane will join us on the second part of this podcast to discuss their diagnosis. Of course, you can find me at thedocbrian.com on TikTok at Doc underscore Brian, Instagram, thedocbrian. There's a link at the bottom of my website of all of my social media. Feel free to follow us there.
0: We look forward to having you with us next time. Shane, where can we find you? Um, I am at Instagram and uh I almost said Tinder. I'm not on <laughs> Tinder. Why would I ever? Um, I'm on Twitch, Instagram, and Twitter at Shadozer, S H A Y D O Z E R.
1: All right. And so check him out, but make sure also to check out the second part of this episode's uh, Doc Talk DX, The Diagnosis on Patreon, and Doc, pa- uh, blah, blah. blah, blah. Maybe they'll edit that part out
0: <laughs> Or maybe they'll show Yeah,
1: maybe they'll show that I am a real human being here uh, Doc Park, uh I did it again <laughs> Doc Talks, that's the show we're on, right? Doc Talks Doc Talks is a part of the befrank Network And again, thank you for listening And we hope you'll join us for the second part Goodbye